Praxians, good evening. Thanks so much for making time to be part of our virtual community. We had a lot of good feedback from last week's small groups, and I hope that you'll continue to cherish the times of seeing one another and hearing each other's voices. Again, hearing all the good discussion, it just reminds me that we're relational beings, and we need friendship. So keep reaching out and connecting with one another through social media and texting, phone calls, and through our different Praxis online events. This evening, we continue through the book of 1 Peter with its theme, Hope for Suffering Sojourners. Little do we know how the truths in this letter would have such a direct application to our lives as a result of COVID-19. For some of you, you're suffering. You're suffering because you lost your job. For some, it's having to put your future plans on hold. For others, it's concern over your physical health. For many, it's concern and suffering for our parents or grandparents or others who are part of the high-risk group. And for many, it's just suffering because we can't physically be with one another. And it's amidst this backdrop that we come to our passage this evening from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 12. So if you're able, please open up your Bibles to our passage. And the central truth for the message is this. Christ transforms our identity. Therefore, our Christ-centered identity transforms everything in our lives. Now I'm going to break up our passage into three sections. The first section will be verses 4 through 8, and we'll talk about the decision that will change our identity. The second section from verses 9 and 10 is where we'll talk about remembering our identity in Christ. And we'll end with verses 11 and 12, where we'll be encouraged to live out our identity in Christ. And my hope is that we'll be able to be spurred to not only survive, but shine for Christ through this uncertain time. Now, before I read the first group of verses, let me explain a few things so that we as 21st century Christians will hopefully have a deeper understanding to the metaphors Peter will be using to make, make this point that the most important decision a person will ever have to make in this life will be whether a person places his or her faith in Jesus or rejects Jesus. Depending on the decision will change one's identity in this world and for all of eternity. The first is a timeline. On the right-hand side is us in the year 2020, sitting in our homes looking at a screen. But moving left, you'll see when Peter wrote his letter, between 62 and 63. Then just before that is when Jesus ministered on earth and died on the cross, approximately 30 to 33. And to the far left, almost a thousand years before Jesus arrived on earth, is when King Solomon ruled over the nation of Israel and built the first temple in Jerusalem. He was the king of Israel, God's chosen people, because out of the Israelites would come the Savior for the whole world. And for centuries, God-free people waited patiently for the Savior who would rescue and free God's people from their sins and oppression. You know, hopefully this gives you a bird's-eye view of the timing because we'll be talking about Israel and the temple, priest, Jesus and his teaching, Peter and those he was writing to, and then how all of that relates to us. The second is to show you a few pictures of the temple in Jerusalem. 
The first temple is the inner cutout of King Solomon's temple that he built. Because before King Solomon built the temple, God's special presence resided in the tabernacle, a small portable tent. But it was King Solomon who was given the privilege of building God a home. And it was at the temple where God-fearing people would bring their animal and grain offerings to be sacrificed before God so that their sins would be forgiven. And as you take a look on the right-hand side of the picture, is where you see the altar where only the priest could offer the sacrifices on behalf of the people. And the temple was so special because it's where people met with God. And unfortunately for the Jewish people, the nation of Judah was conquered by the Babylonian Empire in 586 BC. And the Babylonians ransacked the temple, then destroyed it. And you can say it ripped the spiritual heart out of God's people. And for the majority of Jews, they were exiled to Babylon. And as they left the city, the lasting image in their minds was their destroyed temple. You know, after approximately 70 years in captivity, those who were exiled to Babylon were allowed to return to Jerusalem, where they started to rebuild the temple. And around 516 BC is when it was completed, but it was nothing compared to the splendor of the first temple. The second picture is what the temple on the Temple Mount looked like during Jesus' day, and it was adorned and made beautiful. And now we come to the third image, and it's a picture of the western wall of the Temple Mount today. And I just wanted to show you the size of the stones being used, because Peter's going to use the word cornerstone, and I'll share more about its meaning, but basically it was the most important stone in the construction of a building. And I hope that the timeline and the pictures of the temple and the last photo showing you the size of the stones being used kind of add some depth to Peter's words. Now please follow with me as I read verses 4 through 10. You know, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So again, we're in the first section, the decision that changes your identity. You know, I'll cut to the chase and let you know that there are only two groups of people who live in this world. And it's based on the decision of what a person does with Jesus. There's one group who accepts and follows Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And then there's the other group, are those who reject Jesus and live their lives as they wish. Now, will your identity be a disciple of Jesus or a disciple of yourself or something else? You know, and this is what the Apostle Peter is describing in these verses. 
He's using the metaphor of Jesus being the cornerstone for a spiritual house. This means that today, Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. We are, are his spiritual people. And as mentioned earlier, the cornerstone was the most important stone for a building. The cornerstone was often the largest, the straightest, and the most costly stone. Because everything else was measured, leveled, and squared with this stone. You can say that the only when our lives are compared against Jesus can we see who we really are. Our grade is not based on a curve, but it's a straight scale. How does your life morally compare with Jesus' perfect standard? You know, but most of us don't like to hear that news, that we're sinners and don't have our lives put together as we think we do. It's true today, and it was true back in Jesus' day. And this is why Peter continues the metaphor by describing that the builders would only choose a perfect stone, and all the other stones were rejected and discarded. So in verse 7, Peter quotes a verse from Psalm 118, verse 22. It was a psalm possibly written before the days of King Solomon, but more importantly, it predicted the decision each would have to make regarding Jesus. Jesus knew it, so he uses it in Matthew chapter 11, verses 33 through 44. And in these verses, it records Jesus teaching a parable. There's a master who has a vineyard and allowed the tenants to lease land. And it was time to collect his fruit. The wicked tenants beat, killed, and stoned the master's servants. At last, the master decided to send his son, believing the tenants would respect him. But they killed him as well. You know, the point of the parable was that the previous servants were Old Testament prophets, and the son was the, of the master was Jesus. And the tenants were like these religious leaders. Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus makes clear that throughout history, from the days when, when the psalm was written, to Jesus using it in his teaching, to when Peter quotes it, and for us today in 2020, he's clear that no matter how educated we are, how religious we are, how morally upright we are, how esteemed, how successful, or whatever else we believe will merit good favor with God will not matter. The decision is whether you will submit and place your faith in Jesus, because if you don't, then eternal punishment awaits. You know, if you're not a Christian, I thank you for listening up to this point. And I'm sure there are many questions and arguments you have about following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. But I just want to encourage you to find someone who you can talk to about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does it mean to be a Christian? And contrary to many unbelievers, becoming a Christian doesn't mean your life of fun and joy ends. Rather, when you respond in faith, then you really begin to live life. Notice that Paul, Peter, calls Jesus the living stone. Jesus is not a dead God, but he is a living 
so that those who follow Jesus will also have life. So during this pandemic, we may have concern whether we may get this virus and possibly die, but we're not held hostage to it because we know God is with us. We know our future is certain in this life and the life after we die. We have peace and this changes how we see the pandemic we're in. Our second section is titled, Remember Your Identity in Christ. What do you identify with? Since I'm a pastor, you'd hope that I'd give the Sunday school answer and say Christ. So I'll say, I identify with Jesus. I would also say, I'm a husband of my wife, father of my daughters, other things that come to mind, Lakers and Dodgers fan, fly fisherman, taco lover. But when I was in high school, it was easy. So I have a little show and tell for you. You know, as you can see, it's a letterman jacket. I don't even know if high school students wear them or think they're cool or not. But in my old grumpy man voice, back in my day at my high school, wearing a letterman jacket was pretty special. But I remember my freshman year, as the spring season was coming up, I was trying to decide whether I was going to swim, something I grew up doing, or play volleyball. I chose to swim. And the only reason was I thought I could get a varsity letter my freshman year. And if you're wondering, I missed getting it by a few races. It seems so silly now, but I remember as I wore my jacket, it gave me my identity. The reason why I ask this question is that humans have to look at someone or something else to give us our identity. Christ gives us our identity. And I'd like to show you a graph of the major themes in 1 Peter and how they all relate to our identity in Christ. As you can see in the middle is our identity. Our identity is that we are suffering sojourners who have hope because of Jesus and his gospel message. You know, our identity in Christ provides us with purpose. So if you look at the top circle, we now live for God's glory and not our own. Continuing clockwise, our identity in Christ provides us the foundation in how we see and deal with the suffering and hardships in this life due to living in the sin-filled world. Continuing, our identity in Christ provides us the motivation for living a life different from the world, and that motivation is that Jesus come back again, and he'll establish his eternal kingdom where we'll live with him and other Christians for all of eternity in a perfect world. And lastly, our identity in Christ provides us our lifestyle. We're to live differently in our relationships with non-Christians, how we deal with those in authority, such as the government and in the workplace, how we live in family relationships, and how we deal with one another as God's family. All this to say, our identity in Christ is essential, because if our identity is in something or someone else, then everything else changes. Our purpose, our challenges, our motivations, our lifestyle. So for those of us who responded to God's call to follow His Son, we have a new identity that supersedes all our previous identities. And this new identity in Christ can be described in many ways. Verses 9 and 10 reminds us of who we are because when life gets tough and our lives are filled with suffering, we often forget who we are. Right now, your identity Maybe it's maybe in your job, so you worry all the time about your job. You worry about not being able to pay your bills. You work at all hours answering texts and emails to show you're worthy 
just in case layoffs happen. You know, where's your identity right now? Peter writes to remind the Christians in Asia Minor and us starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter goes back to talking about Israel and the temple. Why? Because he wants to let everyone who is not Jewish know if they place their faith in Jesus, then they have been adopted to God's family. And that includes a special lineage to Israel. He starts by reminding them that they are a chosen race. It's not because a particular race is dominant, but it's special because it's a race of all colors, all backgrounds, all education levels, all ages. And what unifies us is that we were chosen by God. We're part of God's chosen race because of His grace. We're a race of thankful, sin-forgiven people. You know, do you remember that? And are you thankful for that? The next three identities, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession are all connected in the book of Exodus. Chapter 14 contains one of the greatest events in Israel's history, escaping the captivity of the Egyptians by crossing the Red Sea. Seven weeks after the Exodus, the nation of Israel arrives at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. And it is here that Moses receives the law from God, the instructions on how God's people are to live different from their idol-worshipping nations when they enter into the Promised Land. You know, God spoke to Moses about how he will take Israel as a special people. And God said to Moses in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There are three divine blessings God promises the people of Israel. The first blessing is being God's treasured possession among all peoples of the earth. The second blessing is being a kingdom of priests. And the third blessing is being a holy nation. So why does this matter for us who are suffering? It's this. If God protected and cared for his people as they escaped the Egyptians, he will indeed protect and care for you. God cares for us collectively, and he cares for you individually. How personal? Take a look at verse 10. Did you recognize the phrases, you were not a people? and you had not received mercy? Any minor prophet book come to mind? Peter's going back to God's prophet Hosea. Yes, that Hosea, the one who God commanded to marry a prostitute named Gomer. They had three children, but there's some speculate, speculation that the last two may have not been Hosea's children because Gomer went back to being a prostitute. But the second daughter was named No Mercy and the third son was named, Not My People. 
such harsh names, but it was a judgment against Israel for turning to other idols and false gods. Think about this. All of us were like the names of this girl and boy. Before we came to Christ, we're spiritual orphans who had no mercy and we were not part of a people. But God saw you and chose you. He, he brought you in, healed your heart, gently explained and showed you mercy and said, no matter what type of earthly family you came from, you are now part of my eternal family where you are known and loved unconditionally. This is a truth we have to remember daily. We're loved because we were chosen and given grace and mercy because of Jesus. And this leads us to our last section, live out your identity in Christ. And this is found in our last two verses. Verse 11 starts off, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We have to live out our identity as sojourners and exiles on two battlefronts. The first battlefront is inside of us, our hearts. The second battlefront is outside of us, our society. The first battlefield is to fight against the sins in our hearts. Peter makes a broad statement of all sins under the phrase, passions of the flesh. So there are specific sins in your life that you have sprouted due to the coronavirus? Is it a sinful fear? Fear of losing your job? Is it trying to control everything in your life? Is it envy or jealousy? Is it some form of lust? Is it laziness? Is it not working hard at home? Is it impatience with your parents or roommate? You know, I'd recommend that you take some time and examine your heart. Make a list of the sins that have popped up as a result of the pressure of this virus and pick one of them to work on. One of the things that I've been praying is that God will grow me and my family in ways we could never imagine because of this virus. The second battlefield is to keep your conduct among the Gentiles, meaning non-Christians, honorable. You know, during Peter's day, Christians were being persecuted because they didn't bow down to the local deities and gods. Today, you can say we as Christians are persecuted for not worshiping the idols and societal beliefs of our current day. But it shouldn't surprise us. We should expect to suffer for our faith. You know, I remember being in mainland China and walking to a 7-Eleven to get a drink for me and my family. And like our 7-Eleven, there were fast food items and I wanted to get a hot dog or something along that lines. I don't speak Chinese and so I tried my best to point to what I wanted and the lady, the worker, just started yelling at me. And to this day, I still don't know why. You know, when we travel to other countries, we expect to be treated differently from the locals because, you know, we don't know the language or the etiquette or the different cultural cues. And for us as Christians, we should expect to be treated differently here. 
You know, yes, we may have an American passport, but our true citizenship is being part of God's kingdom. So we shouldn't demand what others around us that they should change. No, this is where our identity in Christ comes into play. We need to change by displaying our kingdom ethic. Because when we live out our identity in Christ by displaying the fruit of the Spirit, like love and joy and patience and gentleness, then we'll be able to live out the middle of verse 9. It says, That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. One of the purposes as suffering sojourners is to glorify God by sharing with others the God we believe in. When our lifestyle reflects Christ, Peter notes that there may be a progression for some non-Christians. You know, where they start by mocking us and accusing us of evil. Then they may begin to see a consistency in our good deeds, even amidst their persecution. And by God's grace, some will come to saving faith and begin to glorify God on their own. Maybe some of you experienced that in your own life when you questioned and mocked Christians as being hypocrites. But maybe it was that one person who just continued to live a life of love and patience towards you. And over time, your heart began to soften to where you are now, where you love and you live for Christ. You know, what a beautiful grace that God allows us to play a part in helping others come to eternal life in Christ. So let's make these truths tangible in our COVID-19 world. And I'm going to borrow from an article written by Rosaria Butterfield titled, Practice Hospitality, Especially During COVID-19. She wrote down four things for us as Christians who have a different ethic and economy from the world. I'll share the first two as it talks about how to live out our identity in Christ. The first thing is practicing the Christian ethic of hospitality under COVID-19 demonstrates Christian brotherhood and good Samaritan care for those whose lives are upended and who need help. I'm sure you realize you need help, but the question for us, do we know the specific needs of others around us? In our home, we've tried to share what we have with others. You know, just this past week, we got this bulk-sized package of stew meat and it was way too much for us. So we divided it up and gave it to three other families. And one family gave us a box of Hayashi rice in return. We've also tried to reach out to our neighbors and friends to see how we might be able to help. You know, we're, we're, when we're, we've gone shopping for others, you know. And let us go over and beyond in our generosity during this time. The second is practicing the Christian ethic of hospitality under COVID-19 demonstrates our fear of God, not of men and the virus they may carry. There's definitely a part of me that doesn't want to go to the market. I don't want to be around people because of my fear of not just bringing home food, but the virus to my family as well. You know, I've gone shopping and I have to fight my fear and judgment of others. Do they look like they're sick? Do they sneeze? You know, I've tried to have a heart that is not selfish or greedy as well. It's, it's hard when there's a pressure to grab the items that are in demand. I've tried to be patient and wait for others to get what they need first. And I've tried to be friendly with others, especially the workers. So be different when you shop. 
and don't fear people. Love them. And let's take this time of safer at home to examine our hearts and, and see where sin has a stronghold and, and ask God to be gracious in helping us fight against it so that you may be a calming light amidst the tense and fear-filled dark world. I do hope and pray that God will use this time to humble many people so that they may come to taste the sweetness and beauty of Christ and glorify God on the day of visit visitation. Let's not miss the opportunity to be part of God's plan during this unique time in human history. You know, brothers and sisters, all of us are suffering. And for most of us, COVID-19 is adding to our suffering. But I hope you're encouraged by Peter's teaching us about how our faith in Christ transforms our identity. And on a daily basis, we have to remember our identity in Christ and we have to live out our identity in Christ. You know, God has brought the coronavirus into our lives, but let it draw us closer to Christ. For as we do so, then we'll be able to see the opportunities to proclaim our gracious Redeemer with those around us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths about how our identity has been changed because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And I continue to pray that you be with my brothers and sisters. For some of them, that they're isolated. And I pray that you remind them that you are with them. And Father, for, for the rest of us, we pray that we would be able to see this time as an opportunity to be able to be a blessing to others. Allow your word now to sink deep into our hearts and transform us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.